This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, please send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. One of the things you quickly learn in politics is that politics is not a meritocracy. That is to say, the most qualified, best, most meritorious person uh, doesn't win, like it happens hopefully in business and in academia and elsewhere in life and sport. And I was fortunate to enter Parliament in 1996 with my colleague, Dr. Muriel Newman. And I promise you, if there was a, if politics was a meritocracy, she would have been prime minister. And you can't help just now to reflect on that, that if Dr. Newman was prime minister, we would be living in such a different country in such a wonderfully prosperous and harmonious country. But instead, we got Helen Clark, John Key, Jacinda Ardern, and Chris Hipkins, which is our tragedy, actually. Um, I'm a great fan of democracy, but we've got to be mindful and awake to its deficiencies. And Muriel runs a great uh, webpage, a great uh, institute called the New Zealand Centre for Political Research, where she writes on the issues of the day and has guest writers on the issues of the day. I encourage you all to go there and also to sign up. And Muriel wrote a shocking, shocking article, which was six years of failure. And it took us back to before Labour got elected. And I was amazed how much I'd forgotten. And so we've got Muriel to remind us. Good morning, Muriel. Good morning, Rodney. Well, you do a wonderful job on your page. How do people find it? And then we'll go to your article. Um, yes, www.nzcpr.com. NZCPR, of course, stands for New Zealand Centre for Political Research. And as you said, we put out a free weekly newsletter. And um, yes, the more people who come and have a look, um, you know, the more more interesting their lives will be. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta tell you that I said to my wife when Jacinda Ardern got elected to be Prime Minister, or selected, in your words, uh, appointed, of course, by Mr. Peters to be Prime Minister, that we were about to learn, she was about to learn how important politics was, because I thought we were going to be in for a rough time. I had no idea how bad it would be. No idea. And I remember my wife thinking, oh, yeah, and then I remember her getting enraged about, remember when you couldn't grab a plastic bag any longer at the supermarket? And this was declared from on high that plastic bags were to be banned. And if you forgot a bag, you found yourself struggling out of countdown or pack and save with all your apples and bananas in your hands and toddlers and kids. And it was God awful. And she said, why would anyone just do that? Right. And of course, it seems so trivial now to look back about getting angry about plastic bags and 
plastic straws compared to what was to happen. And then you wrote this column where you went back before that election and reminded us, walk us through it. Tell us. Well, I I think that, first of all, if you go back to 2017, you know, it was pretty much a very different world, wasn't it? And the National Party had had nine years of government. And, you know, in New Zealand, after nine years in office, usually there is a change in government. But back then, there didn't seem to be any real appetite for a change. You know, the economy had been described as a rock star economy. And I always remember there was a poll that came out not long before the election. It was done by the listener. And it showed that 84% of New Zealanders thought that we were doing incredibly well for a small country at the bottom of the world. And 76% said that given the state of the world, there was no better place to live in. And when you think about it, you know, National had come in in 2008. The country was in a recession. We were in the middle of the global financial crisis. And then we had, and most people have forgotten, the swine flu pandemic, which they sort of took in their stride even though, you know, there were, well, 3,000 from memory uh, people died in it. So it was, you know, a pretty serious event, but it certainly didn't have all the drama that, that COVID did. Arguably, you can say it was a different thing, but nevertheless, they took us through the pandemic, and then we had the two earthquakes, you know, and we had commodity slumps. So National had, had navigated the country through a pretty rough time, But what they'd always wanted to do was to ensure that at the end of it, New Zealand was a prosperous country and that people could get ahead. And that's actually, you know, the state that the country was in in the lead up to that election. There was another thing that I recall very vividly in 2008. And as an MP, you go along to a lot of functions where, you know, the prime minister speaks. And I remember just after the 2008 election going along to a function in Auckland where John Key was to speak. And he was amazingly charismatic. And he walked into this big, you know, theatre to speak. And the room lit up with his presence. And everyone felt happy because he walked in and he was prime minister. And when he spoke, it was with a smile on his face and it was all light and fun and optimistic and looking to the future. And everyone felt great just about him and him being prime minister. And it was such a stark contrast. I have a lot of respect for Helen Clark, but it was a stark contrast to her persona and personality. And I can remember being at functions where everyone was, you know, eating and drinking and laughing and talking. And then she would walk in and she'd just suck the life out of the place, right? And everyone would feel down and sour and miserable. And so with the arrival of John Key, it was like this euphoria of optimism and you could afford to be happy and positive again and successful again, if you know what I mean. 
I really yeah. noticed a, sh- a, a shift in the mood that's very easy to forget with his election. It is. And, you, you know, back then, Rodney, when we had the change in government, you know, like everybody, you know, watching television and, and it's like, you know, uh, yes, Labour's out and, and National's in and, you know, let's, let's hope it's a great future. But the one thing that, that I recall was it was like a cloud had lifted over everybody. And I I think I remember writing at the time, it was like a shroud of oppression had Mm. suddenly disappeared when, you know, National and John Key sort of took over. And it's quite interesting because that shroud of oppression is over the country now. And it's been over us, you know, for quite a few years now, so much so that, you know, we probably all forget that it's there. But it's like, be careful what you yeah, it's not just a cloud of oppression. It's a cloud of division, too. It is, yeah. But you have to be careful what you say, who you talk to. You know, you've got to sort of look over your shoulder. And, mm. you know, that isn't the New Zealand way, for goodness sake. We're a, a carefree country. You know, everybody mm. getting on and doing stuff. And it's so different now. It's, it's, it's incredible. You would never have dreamt that one government in such a short time Never. could do so much damage to a country. Never. So take us back. So we're 2017. National didn't have it easy, as you say. They had the flu pandemic, the, the global financial crisis. They had the earthquakes. We had commodity slumps. But in 2017, we all think we're, we all think that New Zealand's got a bright future. Take us through. In the lead up to that election, what happened? Because this is extraordinary. The whole thing is yeah, well, extraordinary. <laughs> it is. So Labour and National, obviously, you know, the opposition parties, they'd signed a memorandum of understanding. Um, I think from memory it was the year before. And it was essentially saying to them that, their focus had to be on defeating the government, which is, you know, that's what opposition parties do. And so rather than trying to cannibalise themselves, which is, again, what often happens with opposition parties, they were focused on trying to win support uh, from, you know, the centre-right, so to speak. And so that was just par for the course. And then about the middle of the year, because... Um, Labour was starting to fall in the polls. If you remember, it was Andrew Little was the leader. The Green Party decided in their wisdom to go all out and see if they could, given that the election was you know, getting closer, they decided to go all out and do a rip-roaring speech on social welfare to try and sort of win across Labour's social justice supporters. And I remember, you know, there was a lot of commentary at at the time about it. And what happened, you probably all remember, remember that uh, Materia Ture, the co-leader of the uh, Green Party who was making this speech, uh, decided to admit to benefit fraud. Now, that created a huge furore. And if you remember, it ended up with her resigning from Parliament. But what happened but quite just interrupting was that- interrupting you there, Muriel, and again, I'm sorry, I had entirely forgotten about that. 
Is that me because I'm I old? Or, I mean, because it's doing so much. But that was, that moment changed everything. It did. It did. And, um, you know, goodness knows why she decided to do it. I think she was just, you know, probably pumped with adrenaline and <laughs> doing an amazing speech and thinking, right, you know, I'm going to, you know, let it all out. So, but it did cause, it, it, it changed the course of the election because what happened to start with was that there was sort of a stunned silence from everyone. And then suddenly the Green Party support started rising and Labour support started falling. And Labour support fell to the point where, you know, Andrew Little decided he had to step aside and put his deputy in as leader. And of course, the deputy was Jacinda Ardern. And, you know, you can all remember the, um, you know, the thing we called Jacinda Mania, didn't we, where the media just loved her and gave her so much publicity. And so, of course, she sucked the support away from the Greens, sucked it away from New Zealand First and from National. And so Labour then rose up in the polls to the point where in the negotiations after the election, um, a new government could be formed with her as Prime Minister. And she became the leader of the Labour Party. How, it was? Can you remember roughly how far out from the election it was? It was seven weeks. My God. And, and of course, there was a big high. So there was, there was so much, um, as I say, she was somebody that the media um, really related to and liked. And so there was enormous publicity uh, for her, for the leadership change and all she was going to do and everything. And so, yes, it, it suddenly, instead of the, the election being about the issues, you know, the issues of concern to the country and, and what the new the contenders were going to do in terms of their policy prescriptions, it all became about Jacinda and her personality. <laughs> and, and she had never been tested. Like, being leader of the opposition, they say, is the hardest job in politics, and I can believe that. And, I mean, the likes of Helen Clark had years in opposition and had been through, you know, a missed out election. Uh, John Key had some time, but he had a pretty soft run uh, as leader of the opposition. But Jacinda Ardern was a total unknown, totally untested her leadership uh, qualities and her ability to contest in Parliament. She was literally anointed in the election campaign to be the leader and the prime ministerial choice. And, and it, it wasn't until, you know, a while afterwards that we actually found out some things about her, like the fact that she had been the um, president of that international youth organisation, socialist youth organisation. And funnily enough, when she was elected to parliament in 2008, instead of resigning from all, you know, other commitments, as most new MPs do, she carried on as president of this international socialist youth organisation for a further 15 months. And so, and, you know, they're sort of very Marxist and, and you know, some people call them a communist organisation. And so suddenly here was this, 
this person leaving our country. And I'm sure most Kiwis had no idea uh, that that was where her roots lay, her ideological roots. The transformation of New Zealand under her leadership has been uh, extraordinary. Like we've never seen anything like it. I don't think the Labour government of 84 to 87 even compares because this is a deep-rooted cultural social change that she affected. Um, do you think that she's a genius, right, because the, she turned New Zealand inside out and upside down and so fast we didn't even know what was happening and couldn't catch our breath. Or do you think that she's not and that she was literally having advice on what to do, not just locally, but, you know, from this global networks that she had established? Because looking back on it, she seemed stupid to me because of the things that she was saying and doing but in the big picture it was masterful it was a huge psychological operation to transform our country genius or stupid it's yeah it's difficult to know isn't it yeah. to be to be quite honest i mean you know if you look at one issue which um you know i think is bizarre it's this whole climate change stuff and I, you know, you, she made some enormous and has made some dreadful changes um, that New Zealand will continue to suffer from um, economically into the future unless National can buck up its act on, on the whole thing. But what she did, I think, in the election campaign was declare that, you know, climate change was her generation's nuclear-free moment. Now, that was a pretty sophisticated um, soundbite, if you know what I mean, Rodney. Yes. You know, it wasn't something you, you sort of think, think of when you're walking, you know, to give the speech or anything like that. So that, she may have had advice, yes. She may have been having advice in the background about this stuff. And the, the next thing she did, or one of the first major decisions she made for the country when she was Prime Minister was that business of banning new deep-sea oil and gas drilling. Now, anybody who knew anything about that whole industry knew that if you, if you banned new development, new offshore drilling, then you would effectively close down the industry, right? This, this isn't just stopping them doing something because there are already a lot of licenses in existence that go for another 30 years or did at the time. But what it does is it prevents investment being made in New Zealand because suddenly the door has shut. And so anybody with any nous about them would have realised that, that that decision would have had a profound effect on New Zealand and our future energy needs. And she made it without advice. She had no official advice, again, according to the commentary at the time. And as well as that, she didn't even have cabinet sign-off. And if you remember, she made that decision the week before she was going overseas for her first international meeting as Prime Minister. 
And when she was over there at her meeting, she was able to stand on the world stage and boast how she closed down oil and gas uh, exploration in New Zealand. And that was something I remember, again, the the news reports at the time, that was something that other leaders, left-wing leaders, were only dreaming of doing. Nobody had actually done it. And yet there she was standing up saying, look what I've done, aren't I clever? And so that's when I think we got a taste of the ruthlessness, whether it was ruthlessness by design or ignorance, I don't know. It's very hard to tell because a lot of her decisions were made um, almost like, I mean, she termed them, I think, or somebody did, called them captain's calls. In other words, you know, I'm going to do this, doesn't matter what the rest of you say, and whether that's just pig-headedness or whether it was, you know, um, by um, overseas somebody whispering in her ear, I don't know. But the big thing was she had no mandate for any of these big decisions that she made for New Zealand. That did change our course. And that crippled us. That has crippled us for decades to come because even if you reversed it, people are going to be weary to invest in New Zealand. And it was a devastating uh, decision. Uh, The media, of course, were in love with her both as a person and politically because they grew, you know, the media are lefties and they agree with all this net zero UN stuff and climate change is going to kill us all. So they all just wrote it up happily going along with it. It was the most um, unconstitutional decision imaginable. Any other prime minister would have been ripped apart by the caucus and the cabinet for doing that because it was so unprecedented and she was lauded for being a tyrant terrible really when you look back at you know what she did to the country i mean you know it's it's just astonishing i always remember rodney when when we were kids and you know you'd have been the same we grew up in generations where our parents and grandparents had either been in the war or been, you know, through it or or were very close to it. And so uh, one of the the things that we did as school kids was we all read Anne Frank's diary, you know, Mm. and and she hid from the Germans, if you remember. And, and, um, And so it was all very real to us. And the one question I had, the one burning question was how come when when Hitler did all these terrible things, how come the German people didn't stand up and stop him? And I could never get an answer in my own head. I could never get an answer to that question until Jacinda came along and locked the country down and declared, you know, the mandates and, and did all these terrible things that... that you know, destroyed our human rights, things that we always thought or took for granted, really. And, yeah, and you could suddenly understand what it is like when a dictator comes in and just takes the law into their own hands and, you know, to hell with the rest of you. And you forget, and or it's not reported, because uh, we think of Hitler as a terrible man who was um, a horrible person. But that's history's judgment. Uh, he he was extremely popular, <laughs> just like Jacinda. And through his popularity, he was enabled um, to do this. And so it was this popularity and 
weapons-grade propaganda um, that was accepted by the media. So when she said things like, we're going to be the most open, honest, and transparent government, and that she could never tell a lie, and that she was going to have a government that would, quote, be kind, that was written up as amazing and transformational and we're going to be in this new world. She was the exact opposite of all these things. She was closed. She was dishonest. There was no transparency. uh, There was absolutely um, no kindness. And yet the propaganda worked. And, of course, we saw it again. Sorry. Are you gone? We saw it again, and you highlighted us. We did the, we did the climate emergency, and then introduced this zero carbon act to New Zealand, which is a UN thing. The opposite nationals bought into that. They're going to be zero carbon, aren't they? Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a terrible, terrible um, sort of issue because you know anybody who has studied science like you have, I have, um, you know, and all school kids used to <laughs> in the old days. We all all grew up sort of understanding the carbon cycle and you know the the fact that carbon dioxide is the food of life. Without carbon dioxide, you know, we'd all die. Um, and then suddenly to find these these politicians coming along and telling us it's, you know, this gas of death. I mean, for goodness sake. And that the world is going to end, you know, and, and then conflating, mixing mixing up weather with climate. And that's, of course, what they're doing now. To start with, it was global warming, wasn't it? And then when the world didn't warm up, then it became climate change. Well, of and course, I'm, we I'm, much old, I'm much older than you, and um, I can recall <laughs> um, being scared out of my pants about climate cooling. But then we had this terrible terrorist attack in Christchurch. Well, that's even the way I phrased that. We had an Australian man go nuts and tragically shoot a lot of people. And Jacinda Ardern, an amazing, weaponized it, both in terms of her caring and support persona and both in terms of legislative and directional change of New Zealand. Tell us how that went. Yes, well, you know, to start with, I think that, you know, she did a, a good job of, of expressing, you know, the sympathy of the whole country over what had happened. But then, but then what happened was that she then used it as an opportunity to introduce one of the policies that Labour had never been able to get through in all the years where they'd sort of been trying, and that was, um, you know, firearms control. And so she then decided that the answer was to crack down on law-abiding firearm owners to make New Zealand safer. Well, of course, as we all found out, I mean, the reason that Guy had a gun was because the law hadn't been followed. 
the um, you know the checkups hadn't been done properly. So it wasn't it wasn't a problem with the laws as such. It was a problem with the people who were meant to do stuff not doing it. And uh, but anyway, that got lost in the in the wind. She was again on the world stage. She was going to make New Zealand safe by cracking down on on firearm owners. And you know, back here, the narrative was everybody knew that it wasn't them law-abiding firearm owners who were, were to blame for any gun problems in this country. It was people who had criminal intentions, and most of well, them and <laughs> remember those, their guns anyway. And remember those wonderful gun owners who would dare speak up and give a submission, they were sort of, they were sort of abused by MPs and and by the media as sort of like white supremacist terrorists by implication. It wasn't again, you a know, rational it was discussion. Just one of those, that's right, and and it was it was shocking the the sort of restrictions that were brought in were just silly. And if anybody, had, you know, in the media who were sort of commenting on, on all this, if they'd have actually taken the time to have a proper look at it. I always remember one of the, the main things. It might have got sorted out now, but um, one of the main things at the time was that a lot of people who were, you know, recreational shooters, like it was, you know, what it is if people are a sportsman of any sort, often, you, you know, you live your life for the to the time when you go out and do your stuff, whether it's on the rugby field or wherever it is. And and she took away the joy <laughs> that people had in, in, you know, what they did in their, their free time. And I, I just remember thinking, well, you know, because the way the legislation was worded, it captured a whole lot of people who possibly were not even intended to be captured, but that's what it did. And rather than tweak it, so that, you know, you weren't quite so harsh. Oh, no, it was full on. <laughs> you know, let's punish, punish these people. Yeah. And, and, and then the registration, but, of course, is mad. And, 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 the, um, and it was a police failure. Um, it wasn't the existing law being a problem. It was a total police failure. And then the police came out so strong on and supporting her, you're very kind about the media because you call them lazy. I call them in on it. Uh, they were in, they were the media in New Zealand became Jacinda Ardern's propaganda arm, uh, well before she was handing out the money. Uh, and you know, that gun registration, they were the ones talking her up, how wonderful she is on the world stage, they were the ones whooping her up. And then whenever these things came along, like um, uh, gun control, rather than reporting it and reporting both sides, they were very, very partisan over it. And it was this idea that it wasn't a, a lone gunman. It was this terrorist thing, and there were white supremacists and Nazis right through New Zealand, especially in Christchurch. And then this amazing thing where our security agencies had to start looking for white supremacists under the bed, like reds under the bed, and also regulate what we can do and say. 
That started then, didn't it? Yeah. And this, and if you remember, the other thing was that blinking Christchurch call. That's when the the full scale regulation of the internet really started, and mm. um, so it didn't just affect us in New Zealand. It's you know affecting the rest of the world. And as anybody who, you know, uses social media will know, now there's loads of stuff that you can no longer talk about on Facebook or, or I don't know, Twitter's sort of a different beast now under Elon Musk. But um, but certainly on Facebook where, you know, if you try to, to discuss anything that's against the government's narrative, it gets taken down and your site gets threatened with being, you know, removed, closed down altogether. I mean, it's just appalling. And she really did lead all of that. And um, I think it's to her enormous shame. And, uh, and yet she stands there saying, aren't I clever? It's bizarre. Well, and and um, she's got a, uh, she'll have a very good future career in the UN as a consequence, as this great um, thing now, as a great leader. Now, here's the thing I did not know right, that is in your column, and I want to read it because this is a key point. Um, Jaspreet is one of our wonderful hosts. Uh, I've got to meet her, and she's this wonderful, wonderful uh, migrant to New Zealand, um, her and her husband being share milkers here down in the south. And she's well onto this UN stuff. And she got dismissed uh, at a public meeting publicly, sort of um, being called an idiot by our um, leader of the ACT Party because she asked a question about the level of UN, what would you say, influence over New Zealand's direction. And you've written this in your column, and I did not know this. By 2019, the radical United Nations agenda 2030 had been embedded into New Zealand's legislative and regulatory framework, but we only found out because Jacinda Ardern boasted about it during a speech she delivered in New York, and you quote, my government is doing something not many other countries have tried. We have incorporated the principles of the 2030 agenda into our domestic policy making in a way that we hope will drive system level actions. Oh my goodness, Muriel. Tell us about that. This is the thing, isn't it, Rodney, that, that um, you know, over the years there's been a lot of talk about it was Agenda 21, wasn't it? Um, yes. The UN's Agenda 21, I remember, was the the thing that I sort of first heard about and, you know, how it had all these sustainability directives in there and, you know, the end result of it all would be that property rights would be eroded and, um, you know, loads of other UN sanctions would come onto the country, one of which, of course, one of the, um, the Agenda 2021 and 2030 um, issues as climate change, you know, um, <laughs> to hype up the fear about climate change and that drives all of the UN's objectives because when people are fearful, they are happier to be regulated 
more strongly. And so there'd been loads of talk about the damaging nature of this Agenda 21, which which I think from memory was New Zealand sort of signed up to it back in the late 80s, was it, or early 90s. And But it had sort of fizzled out and a lot of um, people were concerned because it brought in all the stuff about... Um, planning, didn't it? Um, urban boundaries and, and um, not expanding housing out because um, otherwise, you know, you you were going to um, kill off all the productive areas of New Zealand. And so that's why you had to have um, all the central planning and for councils. And so anyway, all, all of that debate has happened. And then blow me down, we hear from a speech in New York that she's now put in the upgraded version and nobody knew about it. And then when you, you know, I remember going in and trying to find out, well, where is it? And, of course, it's impossible to find because it'll be a line here and a line there and a regulation here and one there, and you can't put your finger on it. And that's why all this council planning stuff, all what's happening in the schools, all what's happening in every government policy is so bizarre because it is literally in her words, she's embedded it into our system of government, not democratically, but by stealth. And the only people that she's prepared to tell about it was the UN. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was um, it, it was a, a Bill Gates meeting, Bill and Melinda Gates meeting, a private meeting in New York, but she um, it was videoed. And also, I recall um, it was posted on the um, Beehive website at the time. So, so it's not it a surprise. Was, it's not a surprise that I don't. I hadn't heard about it till I read your column. No. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness! No, I'm sort of the enormity of this stuff. Now, here's another great thing that you reminded me of. This is just. Oh my! It's just. Oh my! They were on course to be totally defeated at the upcoming election because everything they had touched had turned to dross. We were going to have a billion trees. No trees got planted. I forget. We are oh, 100,000 houses. No houses got built. In fact, we went backwards. Everything of a tangible nature that was promised by her government, building some fast train down somewhere in Auckland. Everything that was promised, not only were the targets not reached, they weren't even started. Like, you'd, if you could count 100 trees being planted, it would be amazing, right? These were total failures, and she was toast. She was going to be toast. And then what happened, Muriel? Well, it was interesting because, you know, it really was a winter. I like your use of the word. I like your use of the word interesting. (laughs) If you probably, (laughs) if you used the proper word, we'd probably have to put a beep in. Interesting. Boy, oh boy. Um, I'm talking to Dr. Muriel Newman from the New Zealand Political Research Centre. They've got a great web page you can find. She's a former colleague of mine. If we had justice in the world, she would have been Prime Minister and we would have a great country now, but that's how democracy works. And we're covering off the the six years of failure of Labour. We've just got to the bit where they were heading for defeat in the 2020 election and 
as Muriel says, what happened next was interesting. Yeah, COVID came along. <laughs> so the COVID pandemic came along, and if you remember back then, as we all do, um, it was all very confusing. You know, we were shown pictures of people dying, um, and it was a very worrying time. They, were, they had and, pictures on the news of people standing in the street in China dying while they were standing up, supposedly. Yeah, I remember the pictures from Italy too. Remember yes. from the hospitals up in Italy and northern Italy, and it was, um, it was anyway, the, the result of all that was that, you know, most Kiwis were pretty terrified of, of this pandemic. Now, we had, interestingly, we had a, there's my word again, we had a, um, a pandemic plan that had been developed um, for, you know, a flu-type uh, disease, and it had been rolled out um, when the swine flu pandemic came along that National were dealing with, and the, um, the, the result of that was that they then tweaked it, and that was what was sitting in the cupboard. And so instead of getting that out and, and following that approach, um, of course, you know, Jacinda took it all into her own hands, didn't she? She uh, hired an army of um, PR consultants to come up with, you know, the team of five million and be kind to each other and all that sort of thing. And um, their purpose, it seems to uh, me, when you look back, uh, was to keep fear of COVID top of mind. And, of course, that led to an election win of immense proportions for Jacinda. Yeah, well, it was presented like she was Winston Churchill fighting off, you know, the Nazis. It was extraordinary. And she just hosed in. And then, of course the most draconian changes to New Zealand ever. Um, the single source of truth, the idea that you'd be living in a democracy that in respect of anything, let alone, you know, a pandemic, which we were finding our way through, would declare themselves to be the single source of truth. And then the censorship, which was had started with Christchurch and then became full-blown during COVID. So doctors, scientists were literally deplatformed within New Zealand, declared verboten, and anyone speaking out had their, as you say, Facebook posts removed, tweets removed. Um, I couldn't believe it because um, I remember doing something, they said, oh, you can't mention the word um, vaccine because it'll just disappear off YouTube. And I thought, no one's going, bang, off it goes. They had algorithms searching it out. It was <laughs> phenomenal, the level of control that hit us. We, 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 well, we well know that, but it was used to extreme political advantage to implement tyrannical policies that are still with us because the attitude of New Zealand was changed by this. The attitude of our relationship between our, the government and the citizen of New Zealand was changed and changed, I won't say permanently, but it was changed. It just didn't end when COVID ended. It's still with us, the attitude. That's right. Yeah. 
and and it's it's the sinister Orwellian thing, isn't it? That um, you know, words no longer mean what they're meant to mean. You know, they've been yeah. given new meanings, and and um, and you have to, you really do have to be careful what you say, how you say it. And people can no longer discuss certain issues, can they? I mean, no. you know, some topics have always been touchy where, you know, people have got vigorous views on different things, but um, it's just got so much worse. <laughs> then you described what happened with he pua pua, which is another thing. We're censorship, we've got dictatorial powers, and then he pua pua is hidden from us. Well, the, the funny election. thing about Hipurpur was that um, if you remember back to the election where Jacinda, you know, promised she would govern for all New Zealanders, and I think, you know, no matter what you thought of her, that was a sort of reassuring, um, you know, a promise to make to New Zealand. And... Shortly afterwards, all this strange stuff started happening. I, I remember sort of, you know, discussing it with Frank, my husband, you know, what on earth is driving all this stuff? It was when suddenly the Maori language started being used more. The country was called Aotearoa New Zealand instead of just New Zealand. But there were a whole load of, of things, little little things happening, and and you didn't know where it was coming from. And so you didn't know what was causing it and so what you could do to try and stop it. You, and then somebody said to me, have you seen this? And they sent me a link. And it was to a report called Hipurpur that had been um, released publicly the day of the election. And it was on the um, Tipuni Kokiri's website, Department of Ministry Affairs. And... So I remember reading it and saying, what on earth is this? And I wrote about it. And by the time my next newsletter came out, uh, somebody had sent me a link to the full report because the one I'd looked at was heavily redacted. But another uh, report had been found and was available. So we, we then looked into that. And for goodness sake, it was a, a blueprint for turning New Zealand into a country of ruled by Maori, in other words, turning our democracy into tribal rule by 2040, which was the 200th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. And there it was, all set out, what we had to do in health and education and local government and, you know, to democracy itself, with the language, with the culture... It was all all set out in this, uh, from memory, about a 150-page document um, explaining it all. So I wrote about it again, and um, look, it, it was just days, really. It was being talked about in Parliament, uh, whether they liked it or not. The media were forced to report about it. Um, the government, of course, um, said, we don't know anything about it, <laughs> which was ridiculous. And then we found out that it had been produced... In 2019, um, delivered to the government to Nanaia Mahuta in October of that year, and they'd essentially kept it hidden. Uh, when you look back, it was starting to be rolled out through the government departments, but only quietly. Um, and 
the but the whole thing, uh, I think there'd been a lot of worry about it because it was such a profound change that, you know, they decided to make it public um, because then they could say, oh, no, 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 we made it public. Um, but the reality was they kept it hidden from the public during the election campaign and only started um, rolling it out properly um, afterwards. So the whole program had no mandate at all from New Zealanders. And you could say that of all the things Jacinda Ardern has done, this one has profoundly changed the face of New Zealand, the way we feel about our country and the future, unless there's a change in government and a new government actually rips out all the stuff that's been put in. Well, Winston Peters maintains it was kept from him. He was at, I looked into that, he was at the cabinet meeting where Nanaya Mahuta, who at that time was the Minister of Māori Development, where she wanted authorisation to develop a plan of action for putting in place a programme to enact the United Nations Indigenous Rights um, agreement, if you recall, that, that we'd signed up to. Um, With John, John Key. His government, to their shame, did that. Um, and back at the time, I remember John Key saying, because if you remember going right back, Helen Clark refused to sign it because she said New Zealand has got our own treaties and our own programs in place to you know, ensure that the historical rights um, are put hor- historical wrongs are put right. So we had all these treaties and programs in place to do with the Treaty of Waitangi, and so she wouldn't sign up to it because it sort of overrode all of that. But John Key had uh, looked into it, and he said it's symbolic, and in fact I... it is symbolic. To be quite fair, there's one clause in there that essentially says. If governments do not want to put this in place because it upsets their sovereignty, then there is no compunction to do so. But it's sort of hidden in legalese United Nations language, which right. most people don't understand. But you and, I, you and I know that right through everything that happens in government and council and anything to do with government goes to these treaties and cites them as a reason why we must do X. And so signing up to these things has a huge implication. And Peter Sharples flew out from New Zealand under the cover of darkness, like he was on a SAS secret mission, under the cover of darkness to sign it. I I was, um, we were a support party for John Key. We were never told. And when I found out of it, I was a little, to use your phrase, yeah, you say things are interesting, I was a little miffed. And I went to John Key, and he just waved his hands around, and I realized it was either, it was naivety or duplicity. He said, look, it won't mean anything, and it makes Peter happy, you know, we just sign this stuff. It was mortifying. So they signed up to it, and now you're saying that 
Nanaima who bought it to cabinet. Winston was there in the cabinet. It went in front of him. He was asleep. Well, and away hang it goes. on. It was the yeah the intention to develop a plan of action to put the um, United Nations program, Indigenous rights program, into effect in New Zealand. That's what he he was at that meeting where the general agreement was given. Yes, Nanai Mahuta as minister, go off and put together a plan, and we'll have a look at it later. So, it wasn't the Hipurpur plan that he signed off on. Yes, it was the development of a plan, and from what we we understand from him, and certainly um, there is no record of once Hipurpur was actually... There's a record of Hipurpur being delivered to the minister, but there is no record at all of it being taken to Cabinet. And I think, to be fair, what um, they realised when they got that report back was it was pretty much like a a, a bomb ready to go off. (laughs) And and so they clearly decided to keep it under the wraps. So um, from... Uh, October of 2019, right through until Election Day um, 2020, it was uh, kept under wraps. And then it was only on Election Day that, as I say, a redacted copy was released on the government's website. And that's why our schools have changed. That's why... Why everything's changed. Everything has changed because of that report. No one voted for it, didn't even go to Cabinet. And Jacinda Ardern goes around boasting about the UN. This is all part of the UN, um, as we discussed. It's the most... There has been a coup. Um, Do you know what? Most people don't... Yeah, most people don't realise, but but you can find it easily enough if you have a look on government department websites. Most people don't realise that what what he purpur did, it provided the direction, right? It provided the, as I said, the roadmap. And what the Labour had done in 2018 uh, under Calvin Davis, um, who was Minister of Māori Affairs, What they'd done is they had worked with iwi leaders to set up a government department that would be the interface between the Crown and Māori. And that is called the Office of Māori-Crown Relations. You you might even recall there was a bit of a furore at the the time because uh, the minister decided to call it the Office of of Crown-Māori Relations. And they kicked up such such a fuss that the the order of the words was reversed. So, you know, we have oh. the Office of Maori Crown Relations. See, and I know nothing of this. I'm like the ostrich with my head in the sand. Because <laughs> when all this comes out, well, I get so upset in my tummy that I actually have to dive under the bed covers or stick my head in the sand or I just because it is so awful, Muriel. And and the media don't cover it, you see. Well, so, they can't. You, you, know, you, unless... you, your column, your column also explains. Um, 
your column explains what happened to the media. Yeah. Which, tell but us. Just, 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 uh, yeah, finish, sorry. Just to finish that bit about the public service, because this is really important, that what the, what the Hipurpur document did was it set out the plan, and what the Office of Maori Crown Relations did was it set out how are we going to achieve this plan. And so with the Minister's approval and Cabinet's approval, what they then did was that they set up a whole lot of guidelines, and again, you can find all this stuff on the internet, um, a whole lot of guidelines for public service chief executives so that they could be measured by. So, for example, you know, here you are, Mr. Chief Executive of a public, uh, public service department. How many of your staff speak Maori? How many of your staff have, can sing a waiata, for God's sake? How many of your staff have been and spent a night on a marae? And, you know, have you got all these things? Have you got on your website that you're a treaty partner? Have you got a, an agreement, a co-governance agreement uh, with local iwi? And it's got all these requirements. And that has been infiltrated right throughout the whole public service. And also, it's now going to private organisations that have some uh, link to the government. For example, if you're a real estate agent, you now have to do compulsory treaty training uh, because you are registered, uh, real estate agents are registered by the government. If you're a charity and you're on the charities register, progressively uh, you're in the same boat. You have to uh, put up there what your uh, treaty uh, policy is going to be and whether or not you can be a co-governed uh, charitable group. And so it goes on. It's enormous. And it is enormous. It's everywhere. Muriel, we're going to have you back, if you're willing, to do a whole session on He Purpur and what it's all meant and how it's all gone, because you are the one person with the strength of character to have kept up with it, because I just feel sick even hearing you talk about it. By the way, you've committed the dreadful sin of doing your own research. which isn't allowed these days. You're not allowed to look things up on the internet. And also, it's no wonder we're paranoid conspiracy theorists, right? Because all this stuff has been happening behind the curtain. And 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 when this stuff was being pointed out, I can recall myself thinking when everyone would come up to me and say, oh, the UN this and the year and that, I'd sort of look at them and say, well, the UN's not in charge of New Zealand. But in signing up, it is de facto um, has this enormous power. But there's one other element, because I'm even on my extended interviews, I'm getting pushed for time now. The next piece of this extraordinary puzzle was to give millions and millions and millions of dollars of taxpayers' funding to news media in New Zealand from the from the government and to put in their clauses conditions about how they had to report. True story. That's right. The key to all of this is the claim by Iwi 
and now by the government that Maori are treaty partners with the Crown. In other words, that, you know, the Crown is not sovereign, the Queen is not sovereign. Um, she established a partnership uh, with Iwi, so they have the right to rule as well. Now, it's total rubbish, and one of the uh, little projects that we've been involved in is that we've been uh, looking at Sir Aparana Nata, who, as you know, is a great Maori leader, the man on our $50 banknote. He wrote a wonderful explanation of the Maori version of the treaty back in 1922. And so he looked at the original meaning of the treaty, what it was, and, of course, it was a document that gave us the Queen as the sovereign. It protected private property rights, and it made all New Zealanders equal under the law. And he writes that so brilliantly. And so what we've been doing is we've been republishing his little booklet and sending it out around New Zealand. Uh, some of it says a newspaper insert. We uh, will be printing about 900,000 of those um, shortly. We've done half a million already. And as a little booklet, which we're sending out to people who donate to this project, because we want all New Zealand families to have copies of this book, and then they can see what the treaty actually said back yes. in the days before it not got by what, Not anyway. by what Muriel Newman Sorry. says or Rodney Hyde says or Don Brace says, but by what the great Sir Aparananata says. That's right. And you can read it. It's, it's unadulterated, like it's back what it actually was. Anyway, so the government is claiming that there's this partnership. So it's just a lie. It's, an, it's a fabrication. And so what they d did when all the Sipurpur stuff was being rolled out was that they did not want the media investigating, looking into whether or not there's any validity to what they were doing. Was there really a treaty partnership? So what they did was they put $55 million into a public interest broadcasting or public interest media fund, and they said, right, you know, all New Zealand media, can you can come and you can get money from this and it'll help you in these troubled times and all the rest of it. But one condition, well, there are a few, but the main one that we focused on was the fact that you can only take it if you promise to promote the partnership, the partnership concept. And so, in other words, if you want to investigate the partnership, you can't have the money. So it was outrageous. And so what that's meant is that while all this stuff has been going on, uh, while division has been happening within the public service and in the private sector as well, uh, between Maori and non-Maori and privilege has been handed out, the media have been hamstrung from properly reporting on it uh, because most media took some of the money from the fund. And that's the big scandal. Well, we've got an election coming Another up. Another big scandal. National and ACT oppose uh, co-government. New Zealand First oppose new, new government. The other sides all are in favour of it. So it'll be our choice. Dr Newman, Dr Muriel Newman and I know each other way back and um, she is a an amazing uh, person. Her webpage is fantastic because it's filled with truth bombs, as you can tell from listening to Muriel. You can get it by going to nzcpr.com. Dot, dot, dot com. Dot com. 
It's always a tricky one. And you will find wonderful. You've got Aparana Nata's book, which you can order, and uh, it is a a wonderful read. There's wonderful columns by Muriel and others. It is actually a new source. Muriel Newman has chronicled, as you can tell, through her writings and the writings of others, the dismal history of New Zealand with this terrible government that we're enduring and hopefully putting to death. Um, Muriel, I, I, you describe systematically why most of us who don't pay enough of attention are sitting here bewildered about what has happened to our great country. And what you show with this one column and with this interview today is that it has been systematic, ongoing, and I think I would tend to use the word treacherous um, to to us. It hasn't just happened. And I thank you for that because um, it requires a, a, a certain brave heart to be beavering away on this. And you must sound or feel at times that you're shouting at clouds because we all agree, we all think it's appalling, We all can see how terrible this is for our future, and yet on and on it goes. It's like a steamroller that can't be stopped. But that's the thing, isn't it, Rodney? You have to know who's driving the steamroller, where it's coming from. Once Mm. you know all of that, then you've got a chance of figuring out how to go about stopping it. And I think that's been, you know, what's been driving me. I just look at what they've done to New Zealand and it's like we're on a mission to save our country. Well, thank you for that, Muriel. Uh, you're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde uh, on Rally Check Radio. Please send us a text to 2057. Send me an email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Do go to Muriel's site. Uh, it is wonderful. And do sign up to her newsletter so you can be an informed too. She is um, – it is a wonderful institution that we have and a countervailing force to our government. Thank you so much for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10am.